You're listening to Season 3 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not-yet-fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 41 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 3.21, Heart to Heart, and we're your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and I missed an opportunity to talk about narrative parallels in this week's talkback. See if you can guess what I'm kicking myself for not having said. And I'm Nina, new to Double Zeta, and because I have elections on the brain, I really want someone from AUG to outline their platform for me. New York's mayoral elections are this year? That sounds right. Yeah, probably. We're starting to see candidates is the thing. I'm voting Eschenbach. No, no, he's been canceled for hitting his daughter. That hasn't happened yet. You can't pre-cancel someone. They made a whole movie about that. I think Tom Cruise was in it. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 431 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest supporters, Trevor B. and Ryan F. This podcast would not be possible without your support. Did you know we have merch for sale? Through our online shop at gundampodcast.threadless, that's thread, T-H-R-E-A-D, less, L-E-S-S, dot com, you can get our designs on stickers, t-shirts, water bottles, notebooks, uh, and some odder items like shower curtains or skateboard decks <laughs> and more. You should check it out. This week we are covering Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta Episode 23, The Burning Earth, or Moeru Chikyu. For research this week, Nina's going to talk about childhood as a concept and how the modern notion of childhood developed. But first, let's tune in to Radio Free Shangri-La, where two long-separated sisters are getting to know each other once again. We now return to As the Colony Spins. Mistress Alice, Mistress Bethany, your tea is ready. Thank you, Guildenstown. We'll take it here in the second ancillary drawing room. As you wish. Now, what were you saying? Bethany, even though I'm a computer, I'm also your sister. You know that I love you, don't you? Oh, why do you always ask me that just before saying something cutting? You barely play the piano. You won't go near any of the horses. You're drinking your tea with your pinky extended right now. Is that not how it's done? You don't know how to play whist. No one knows how to play whist. And you absolutely refuse to attend your ballet lessons. I want to learn modern. Modern is for peasants. The only appropriate activity you've ever liked was fencing, and I almost wish you hadn't, because of all the stabbing and the blood. No. 
I'm afraid that at this rate it will be impossible for me to find you a husband worthy of your station. I don't need my big sister to find me a husband. I already have a fiancé. And he's the most dashing and magnificent man I could ever want. Oh, Hector. You're so rugged and masculine. Even if you don't call me anymore, or remember any of our time together, or display emotions beside rage and hunger, or remember my birthday, I'll still wait for you. But Bethany, Hector, doesn't test well among the listeners. The who? If only you had seduced Mr. G when you had the chance. Did you know that he's the heir to the biggest toilet fortune in the whole Earth sphere? Ugh, yes. But I think he prefers to be called the G-Man now. Anyway, he belongs in a toilet. Why, I'd sooner marry Guildenstern. Oh my. <laughs> Bethy, that is a horrible thing to say. Oh. Well, it's too late now, whatever you say. He's gone off to Earth with Lady Herman. If my text-to-speech program were capable of sighing, I would sigh here in order to express my exhaustion with this topic. Instead, I will say sigh. Sigh. I can see that you don't want to talk about this anymore right now. You must be exhausted. Oh, I have just had an idea. Why don't we go on a spa vacation? I know all the most relaxing places. Oh, sister, that sounds wonderful. It will be just like the time when we were children and we ran away from home for reasons too important to our characterization to reveal now. Good. I will make all the arrangements. Guildenstern, why does this tea taste of salt? Sometime later. Ah, I see some mail from Mistress Alice has arrived. Oops, I opened it by accident. Well, can't hurt to take a look now, can it? Just what are you planning? Two tickets aboard a luxury space liner bound for Earth. Accommodations at the Hotel Dakar Prince? Invitations to attend the Neo-Zeon Debutantes Ball? She's not planning a relaxing spa vacation at all. She's trying to arrange a match between Bethany and a Zeon officer. But according to the terms of their late father's will, if Bethany marries anyone rebelling against the Federation, she'll be disinherited. And then the whole compute's worth fortune would go to... <gasps> oh, how dreadful. Oh, Guildenstern, you faithless buffoon, you've got to do something. Even if it goes against everything you stand for as a butler, you can't allow Mistress Alice to take advantage of Bethany's trusting nature. Oh, I swore I'd never do this. Hello, Margarita. I need your help. 
And now the recap for The Burning Earth. In geosynchronous orbit high above the Earth, the Argama pursues the Neo-Zeon fleet. Their orders are to stop Haman from landing at Dakar and linking up with her spies inside the Federation Assembly. Glemmy has come to accompany Haman, and he has brought the two girls, Lena and Puru, with him. Lena has snuck out of her lessons once again and is wandering the spaceship when she overhears Puru screaming from the other side of a hatch. Inside, Glemmy and a doctor are monitoring Puru's condition as she undergoes hypnotherapy to make her believe that Judo and all the Argama's Gundams are her enemies. Awaken, Glemmy orders, but the experience is too traumatic. Puru collapses. The doctor says she needs rest, but Glemmy wants her ready to fight immediately. When he discovers Lena eavesdropping, the Xeon commander reminds his hostage-slash-protégé that she will debut in high society once they land on Earth. On the Argama, trailing Haman's fleet just out of range, the whole crew is busy getting ready for the next battle, and for re-entry. The whole crew, that is, except Bicha and Mondo, who can't seem to understand why everyone is working so hard, or why they're willing to fight and die in this war. Bright tries to address their concerns directly. Isn't saving the Earth a good enough reason to fight? But no, it isn't. Bicha and Mondo are space noids, and they don't buy Bright's talk of duty to the planet of their ancestors. So instead, Bright appeals to their selfish instincts. If they don't fight to protect the ship, then they'll die. If they want to leave at the next opportunity, Bright won't stop them. But they don't seem convinced. Bright talks to Judo next, pressing the young pilot about his feelings and his plans for the future, but Judo is unwilling to really discuss either with the captain. Rue and Al reassure him, Judo's a good kid, and more responsible than he lets on. Don't worry too much about him. Over at the Xeon fleet, Glemmy is meeting with Haman aboard her flagship, the Sadalan. He shows off Puru, and Haman is pleased to see another new type in their ranks. But it's clear that she doesn't trust Glemmy. He makes a show of devotion, and she promises the honor of introducing him as her aide when she meets with Federation leadership. But as soon as they separate, she orders her men to keep an eye on the ambitious upstart's plans. It's clear now that Haman's fleet is headed for Federation capital Dakar after all, and on the Argama's bridge, Torres suspects that she plans to seize control of the assembly itself. Then bad news arrives from their allies in Karaba on Earth. Neozeon agents have already infiltrated the assembly. They effectively control it. Bright can't help being impressed by Haman's skill, but the realization of how thoroughly Ayuk has been outplayed leaves him feeling dejected. There's only one move left for them if they want to spoil her plans. An immediate attack to destroy the flagship or prevent it from entering the atmosphere. Judo is uncharacteristically eager to go, but he has his own plan. He knows Lena must be in one of the escort cruisers, so that is his real target. He and Eno convince Rue to swap mobile suits for this operation, and he goes out in the more maneuverable Zeta Gundam. But the Argama's Gundam team won't be free to do as it pleases. Sensing an opportunity to prove his value to Haman, Glemmy orders the Sandra and its complement of Zusa mobile suits to intercept, 
Kuru, brainwashed to hate the Gundam and destroy her enemies, launches without orders, followed by Glemmy and the Bawu. It takes some convincing, but eventually even Bicha agrees to fight. He launches in the Hakushiki and joins El and Ru holding off the Zissas. Meanwhile, Judo goes for the ships, but he runs into Glemmy and Puru instead. Haman's fleet enters the atmosphere, with the Argama still too far out of range to fire on them in this vulnerable moment. Reluctant to fight Puru and unable to reach the Zeon ships while dodging her attacks, Judo is forced to abandon his mission. He tries to appeal directly to Puru. With their cockpits open, he talks to her, face to face and heart to heart. And for a moment, it seems that he's gotten through the conditioning. But then she shoots him. The fighting has brought them into Earth's gravity well, and Puru's Kublai Mark II begins to burn up. Glemmy abandons her, but Judo takes a gamble. He transforms the Zeta and uses its wave rider form to shield and then catch Puru. They descend together as the other ships and mobile suits open their balutes. The battle for the moment is over, and peace reigns in the sky above Africa. So Haman drops her little line about basically hinting that there are clones of her. <laughs> or just body doubles. They don't have to be clones, Nina. Why you always got to go so sci-fi in this... <laughs> 1980s science fiction show. Hang on, let me walk that back. I strongly suspect we are going to need to address the state of cloning technology at some point before we finish Double Zeta. Hmm. 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 So I really liked this episode. How did you feel about it? I liked it too. I don't know that it would stand out to me as a favorite, but there were a lot of good moments. And in general, it felt uh, better structured and like it made more sense. And the scenes within it needed to be there uh, than some other episodes. This is the third time that we have done a exciting contested re-entry to Earth. There's one in First Gundam in episode five, I think. Uh, there's one in Zeta Gundam a little bit later, and then this one is, I think, the latest in the series. So let's compare the three of them. What did you like about this compared to the others, and what did you dislike? Hmm. Uh, I suppose I disliked that I get the sense we're meant to find it exciting and scary like we did before, and I don't think it is. <laughs> Either because of the repetitiveness of it, that we have been here twice before, or... Uh, because it lacks the stakes of previous re-entries. I, I pointed out when we were watching the episode, in previous re-entries, we always see at least one mobile suit burn up. We see someone mess it up, and we see them pay the price for that. We don't get that here. Hmm. And so the sense of the stakes is not the same. Pudu is clearly afraid, but she doesn't actually know or understand what's happening. You know, she mentions, why am I burning up? She doesn't actually understand why re-entry is dangerous. She knows she's in danger and she's afraid. I think that would have had more impact if Pudu had seen what happens to a mobile suit that doesn't do it properly. I get what you're saying. I was actually really affected by that part of the episode. Even though going in, I knew that Pudu was not going to die here, even though I have seen this episode before, her fear, her terror during the descent, um, I found it really affecting. I think 
more so than Zeta, certainly. It's definitely incredibly well voice acted. I, the voice actor for Pudu does an incredible job. Uh, throughout this episode, actually, it was one of the things that I noticed is that when the imprinting is stronger on her, her voice is an adult voice. Yeah, she has like two modes that she's in. And then when the imprinting has been broken, sort of by judo, she's back to her child voice. It's the voice, it's the characterization in a bunch of ways. I suppose I actually felt more affected in that scene by judo because he's so calm with her, but also sort of like prods her when she needs to be prodded. He demonstrates such calm under fire and such emotional intelligence in knowing like when to reassure her, when to kind of push her, because there's that point where the wings of the cubelet are causing too much friction and if she can't get rid of them somehow, they will both die. Favorite 10 seconds of the episode right here when she uses the funnels to blow off her own wings. Right. Well, but first she's like, I can't. There's no way to do that. And he's like, <laughs> and he doesn't say this meanly. The tone of voice is not cruel. But he's like, well, if you can't figure out a way, you will die a crybaby. Because <laughs> she's just like crying and kind of like, ah, there's nothing I can do. Mm-hmm. And he's like, do you do you want to just die? And she's like, no. And then she uses the funnels. It feels like a different side of him. It feels in a lot of ways like a demonstration of what Rue and Elle were telling Bright is their understanding of judo. Mm. Someone who is actually very responsible and who doesn't want to leave tasks undone and who takes on all of these burdens. We have often commented that the platonic ideal of the Gundam protagonist is a good, dumb space boy. Judo has mostly been a dumb space boy, but in this episode, he demonstrates some real goodness. And in some pretty extraordinary circumstances, too. It's an episode that reveals a lot about Judo. First, he develops his crafty scheme to take the Zeta because it's the more maneuverable one, and to uh, make use of this operation to get close to the enemy ships. He finds a way to harmonize his own goal of rescuing Lena with the Ayuk mission of stopping Haman's fleet from descending to Earth. But then, in the moment of truth, when he has an opportunity to save Puru or go after Lena, he chooses to save Puru. That says a lot about him. And it's maybe not what we would have expected from him. I was very interested in the fact that he got into the Zeta because I think that represents a pretty substantial shift in Gundam shows away from necessarily identifying one particular person with one particular mobile suit. It's not about this is my suit and it's always mine. Absolutely. It's about the right tool for the right job. The interchangeability, the interoperability of these mobile suits. Back in first Gundam, we saw a little bit of the characters shifting around at first, moving to different mobile suits. At one point, Amuro tried out the gun tank, and when Sela stole the Gundam, he had to take the gun cannon out. But those were aberrations, and in the case of him taking the gun tank, resulted in disaster. So eventually, people figured out who they were, and they figured out which mobile suits suited them. But here, you're absolutely right. It's about using them as tools. The other thing about judo in this episode and particularly his willingness to postpone pursuit of lena in order to save pudu is it's directly contrasted with 
Glemmy's callousness toward Pudu. You know, we very early on in the episode uh, see him arguing with the doctor. You know, after the imprinting process, the doctor wants to let Pudu rest, that she's physically and emotionally exhausted. Uh, and Glemmy basically says, like, use whatever tricks you've got, doctor, because I need her awake and fighting fit now. Yes. Every time that Glemmy is on screen in this episode, that line from uh, Shelley's Ozymandias keeps popping into my head, the wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command, because that feels like Glemmy's portrayal here. He's like a conventionally handsome, young, charismatic, kind of heroic type person, but he's so callous, he's so cruel, he's so imperious. His face is always contorted into these, like, sneers of command. Except when he's talking to Haman, where he's not quite obsequious, but almost. (laughs) But they both know the game, right? Because we see them interacting with each other in a very politic, friendly manner, the way colleagues would interact. But as soon as they separate, Haman is like, pay careful attention to his bodyguards. And Glemmy is talking about how he needs to prove himself so that he doesn't get left behind because Haman is starting to suspect him. She's aware that he poses a threat. She wants to be ready to neutralize him if she has to. He knows that she thinks he's a threat. He needs to prove himself so useful that it doesn't matter. And all of this then culminates in... You know, initially, when Pudu starts to fall into the gravity well, he does go like he's going to help her. He does move toward her. And then El and Bicha show up and start firing, and she sinks further into the gravity well. And at that point, he's like, eh, oh well. (laughs) If you're lucky, you'll live. I think first he actually says, I guess this is your fate. And this is not the first time that Gundam has uh, identified fate and gravity with each other that it has used gravity, specifically the gravity of Earth, as a metaphor for people's fates. And his attitude here is so different compared to those of the, you know, blonde antagonist ace pilots in the previous series. Shar was a little uh, dismissive of his wingman who was burning up, but there was still a feeling of emotion, regret, a sense of like, you can be proud because you've brought the Gundam down with you. And Jared, of course, was totally distraught when Cacricon burned up in the atmosphere. Well, so I think gender and age comes into play um, and probably also the new type element. But those other men you're mentioning regarded the men who died as like peers, even if they were in a command position and this other man was their subordinate, there was a, a sense of camaraderie. I don't think Glemmy feels any sense of kinship or camaraderie with Puru. To him, Puru is a, a tool. Absolutely. A machine. Uh, and we've already seen him in his attitude towards women. Women are possessions, essentially. He somehow thinks he's going to capture Rue and keep her forever. Because once she's in his power, she has to love him. That's how it works. You know, we find out in this episode that they are going to have Alina make a a debut in high society on Earth, uh, which I assume they mean like a debutante party or a a coming out party Mm -hmm. or any of the vast number of coming of age type ceremonies that happen for teenage girls. 
of the upper classes. Right. Haman has this sort of offhand remark about the snobs in the Federation. And so I do wonder if it has something to do with that. Mm -hmm. You know, this makes very clear to us that Lena is also a political tool of some kind. Why they couldn't find a girl on Axis to train up and make a debut on Earth, I don't know. It's highly probable that the reasoning behind using Lena in this way is never going to completely make sense. <laughs> but it does clearly reveal Glemmy's attitude towards these women. They are nothing more than tools for him. Did you notice he keeps showing up in scenes with Puru when they're on the ship and he's always touching her? He's always holding her by the elbow or by the shoulder in a very, like, controlling position. I did not notice, but it doesn't surprise me at all. And it made me think of the thing you noticed a couple of episodes back about how Wong Lee is always touching people. Mm -hmm. By violating people's personal space, it's a way of saying, I'm more important than you. I'm in control here. It was pretty hilarious when Glemmy is like, wait, the Zeta <laughs> grabs hold of it. Is this Rue Luca? <laughs> <laughs> New mobile suit. Who dis? So what do we think? Are there Haman clones? Body doubles. I think clones, man. We're referring to her line. You know, Glemmy says, well, I am worried about Axis, but there's only one of you, Haman, like explaining why he's staying with her and wants to protect her. And she's like, oh, can you be so sure? This explains the different haircuts, Nina. Whoa, mind blown. It doesn't actually because because the Haman with the triangle haircut when she met Judo remembered the time when the shaggy haircut Haman met Judo. So it doesn't actually resolve that conflict. I'm sorry. Nuts. I shouldn't have raised your hopes like that. Anyway, still leaves us to wonder if there are Haman clones. Body doubles. For me, this episode raises <laughs> one of my big peeves with the series. And I think it's probably meant to, but that Ayug is really bad at what they're doing. <laughs> well, okay, but first we have to define what they're trying to do. Fair. You know, this begins with Bichan Mondo being like, what is everyone on this ship fighting for? Like, they're all working so hard. What are they fighting for? And, you know, Bright talks to them, and he cannot answer in a way that is compelling to either of them. His first response, and he doesn't say it definitively, it's more of a like, well, would it be enough to say that we're trying to save the Earth? And they're like, but we're space noids. Why should we care about the Earth? And his explanation is even more abstract than our own world's reasons about caring about the earth like we all live here right you know if the earth gets destroyed that's bad for all of us they don't live there the conditions of the earth make no never mind to either of them and almost by definition no one in Ayug lives on the earth Ayug is specifically a space noid organization they derive no benefits from the earth uh and in fact, the people who do live on Earth and benefit from the conditions there uh, are often exploitative of space noids. Well, this so. is what Bright says, because Bright specifically says the goal, at least his goal, is to protect Earth from the Earth noids. It's the people on Earth who are the threat to Earth. So why are they fighting Axis? Good question. Yeah, that's sort of what I mean. That <laughs> so I see this as Bright's personal motivation, not necessarily the stated goal of AU, the organization. Which is 
fine, I guess. But still, we're heading into a big battle with Axis, where it's three Axis ships against one Aeug ship to defend the Earthnoid government. And Bright cannot come up with a compelling reason <laughs> for why they're doing that. He can't explain it. And then I think he realizes how <laughs> lackluster that was uh, because he is clearly worried that Judo might also choose to leave. And for the first time ever, attempts to address, like, is Judo resentful of the way in which he was sort of enlisted into this? You know, Rue tells him not to worry, yada, yada. Um, and Bright seems almost relieved to talk to Rue because Rue was also a volunteer. And she says, I believe Ayug's cause is just. And I'm like, what cause? <laughs> Maybe we're supposed to take from this that Rue and Bright share the same motivation. For fighting. I thought this was funny because Judo is so clearly embarrassed by this conversation. He is embarrassed for Bright that Bright is asking him uh, so bluntly to be honest about his feelings. To me, Judo also just seems a bit taken aback that an adult is engaging with him on that level, is sort of temporarily treating him as an equal. I mean, like, <laughs> how do you feel about this thing? that I was a part of. Yeah, he's definitely taken aback, but it really does feel like Bright has put Judo into an awkward position because what is Judo supposed to say here? Yeah, I do resent it. You did in fact get my sister kidnapped and prevent me from rescuing her and basically ruined my life. Maybe Judo doesn't feel all of that, but it feels like a breach of protocol for Bright to ask him so directly. Like I said, Bright is worried. I thought it felt a little desperate <laughs> to be like, are you mad at us? Are you mad at me, personally? Your old pal Bright? But my thoughts about this scene actually had less to do with Bright as an individual. Bright is clearly not great at articulating what needs to be articulated to his soldiers, but I don't necessarily blame him for that. Where is the propaganda machine? Where is the media messaging? Like, it's not as if the idea of newsreels and... Uh, you know, patriotic radio broadcasts and famous actors and musicians doing sort of encouraging and promotional messages. Like, none of that was new uh, at the time that, the, you know, this was made. That kind of stuff had been a big part of World War II and I'm sure had even come up in previous wars. I mean, propaganda has been a thing forever. We see Haman deliver very simple and effective messaging. Mm -hmm. The people who've been exploiting us now we're going to go kick their butts. They're right over there. It's our turn to be in charge. <laughs> I mean, what is the holoscope except a very effective method for propaganda? Right. But so what is Ayug doing? Nothing. They have the Ayuger automated therapy app. <laughs> if I were part of Ayug, I would want every civilian in every colony all over space to know why what we were doing was right, why what we were doing was important and should matter to them. And the fact that nobody really knows or cares is, I think, a huge failure on their part. And that was easier to accept close to the beginning of Zeta when we had the sense that the Titans controlled everything, censorship was everywhere, and there were occasional references to a kind of underground press where a person might learn about things like new types, Amuro Ray, and the Ayug. But they have not engaged with those aspects of the story, and it kind of feels like they've been forgotten, especially now that the Titans have been defeated and Ayug is something like Ascendant. 
it's not like Anaheim Electronics and Wong Lee and all of those shady, smoke-filled backroom backers don't have resources. But see, I actually think the show is doing this deliberately because why else ha- give us Beach on Mundo asking these questions and then show us Bright's struggle and inability to effectively answer them except to draw our attention to the fact that like, it was easy to have a message when the message was, we have to get rid of the Titans. <laughs> mm-hmm. Here are the baddies and we have to get rid of them. But that absent that enemy, Ayug is actually struggling to articulate why they exist and what they're doing. Yeah, Ayug is struggling to define its goals and justify its existence. And although that's not foregrounded in any of these episodes, it is a through line for all of Double Zeta so far. And not only are they struggling in the sort of like public image, mass media, (laughs) propaganda messaging department, uh, it would also appear that they are completely ineffective on the espionage front. We find out that Axis has already completely infiltrated the Federation assembly at Dakar. They basically control it already. We see Bright and the bridge crew looking completely defeated and dejected. They don't know what to do in this circumstance. They've been beaten before they've even gotten to Earth. So what do they do now? They know they have to enter the atmosphere. After that, uh, you know, I don't I don't think even Bright knows exactly what they should do at that point. So what the heck have all those shady characters in back rooms? <laughs> what have all those oligarchs been up to? Apparently not much, or it hasn't been very effective. We haven't seen any other Ayug ships, except for the Levy and Rose, which is really an Anaheim ship, since the beginning of this series. We know a lot of the Ayug people got killed in the final battles of Zeta. Who knows how much of Ayug is even left? Maybe all of those shady backers have decided to cut their ties with this organization. We know they have allies in Karaba, but... They don't seem to have the resources they did just a few months ago. It's just that with the exception of Mashima on Shangri-La, whose attempts at public messaging were hilariously terrible, it just feels like Ayug is being outclassed and outmaneuvered at every turn. I love the treatment of Bicha in this episode, although it does continue that persistent problem of what are we supposed to think about Bicha? Right, he tried to get his friend killed last episode. And now we're just going to, like, pretend that didn't happen. Let's just pretend that didn't happen. I like the presentation of Bicha in this episode because it gets at something very important, which is you can correctly identify a problem and still respond to it in a bad way. And that's that's Bicha in this episode all over, right? He is correct that they don't have a good motivation. He is correct that Ayuk has not articulated uh, a reason for them to fight. However on the spaceship, they are all in it together. And as L says, you know, they have to fight. They have to go out and protect each other. And Bicho's right. Like, adults started this war and they shouldn't expect a bunch of kids to go out and fight for them. But the circumstances are what they are. For me, that brought to mind various uh, sort of climate change issues of how You know, young kids now, most of the climate change issues that they'll face in their lifetime were created by generations before them. You know, that's a problem that they have just barely contributed to, if at all, at this juncture in their lives. 
And yet it's a big part of fixing it is going to fall to them. And that sense of like you didn't create the circumstances, but because you live in them, you have to work to fix them as well. It's all monstrously unfair, but pointing out that it's unfair doesn't make the problem go away. What I liked about this scene was my interpretation of why he ultimately gets in the Hyakushiki. And can I just say, Hyakushiki is a great mobile suit for Bicha. <laughs> it feels like he would be drawn to the extremely flashy oh, absolutely. mobile suit. I don't think we mentioned it, but the scene in the last episode where Elle and Eno and Rue are all arguing about who gets to pilot the flashy gold mobile suit. And Elle is like, no, you can't. It's mine. She stole the whole episode in like 10 seconds. But anyway, uh, <laughs> my interpretation of Bicha ultimately getting into the mobile suit after one of the, I assume, engineers starts to get into it is that Bicha just needed to hear an adult admit that this is a messed up situation. He needed to see someone willing to take the same risks that they are demanding of these kids. He didn't actually need them to go through with it, but he needed to see, like, you're not asking us to do something you wouldn't do yourself. Well, and remember that Judo did the same thing back on Shangri-La after Astanaji took out the Zeta. I know this was months ago at this point, but it followed a similar arc. But I do think for Bicha, there's the added element of just hearing someone admit that he's not being unreasonable, that he is not being just some punk. Like, he is raising good objections. He's not just some punk. He's some punk with a good point. We don't like you, so I hate to admit it, but you're right. I love that line so much. <laughs> it's a small thing in this episode. But we need to talk about Judo's relationship with Haro. And the most important thing to say about Judo's relationship with Haro is that he mostly doesn't have one, which is unique among the Gundam protagonists so far. Amuro, of course, had a relationship with Haro. Haro was his robot that he himself built. Don't at me about the origin. Um, <laughs> Camille found a Haro on the moon, was immediately attached to it, and we talked a lot in Zeta about how Haro for Camille represented childhood and innocence. And I think it still does. But Judo does not cling to Haro. Judo does not have any attachment to Haro because for Judo, there is no uh, affiliation between childhood and like innocence and safety. Judo had a much less sheltered childhood in many ways than Amuro and Camille. He's clearly had to fend for himself in a big way. He's been working since we don't even know what age, but I assume a young one. Uh, he has already left a lot of childhood behind in, in both the society he lives in and I'm sure in his own mind. And so there's no sense of, of clinging to that, I don't think. It makes me think of things I've read about the construction of childhood as a discrete part of a person's life um, and how historically when the idea of childhood was developing, um, childhood was something that middle and upper class young people experienced and poor kids experienced child labor. Right. And an accelerated progression into adulthood and adult responsibilities. And I think that maps to Judo's experience, and it's why 
a toy like Haro that is so representative of childhood innocence just has no appeal to him. Right. It's mainly with Shintan Kum. And both Amuro and Camille went through a process of giving up Haro, passing it on. In this case, that's not necessary for Judo, though he does make use of it as a tool briefly in this episode. I have two visual notes. The first is during the battle, which is very nicely animated, uh, there's a moment where Rue is in the double Zeta and she is absolutely a monster. She is kicking butt and taking names, destroying like half a dozen Zissa mobile suits in one shot. And she does this like cool glamour pose with the suit. <laughs> and it's not the glamour pose that Judo does. Different pilot, same suit, new glamour pose, even though it meant new animation instead of reusing the one they already had. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's nice that they gave her a unique pose. Second note, this is something that I low-key love every time it comes up. Sometimes when they're trying to identify enemy mobile suits that are coming at them, on the monitors that the characters are looking at, you'll see the computer cycling through wireframes of all of the different enemy mobile suits it could possibly be. And they do that in this episode, and I really like it every time it happens. And if you look closely at these frames, you can see some uh, non-standard anglicizations that were done by the animators. So like the Hama Hama is actually the Hanma Hanma, and the uh, Zusa is the Z-S-A. Neat. Yeah. It's the little details when you're really paying close attention. I particularly liked the end of the episode where we have all of the various mobile suits and ships falling to Earth, uh, and they look like asteroids or meteors. And uh, there was a sense that the battle was interrupted by the re-entry, basically, that the re-entry happened in the middle of the fight. Particularly, I think, because so many of the mobile suits did the re-entry without going back to their ships. And I do wonder, you know, at the opening of the next episode, will things pick up as soon as everyone is safely inside the atmosphere? Like I keep telling people on Twitter when they ask us about future events in the series, only time will tell. And now, part one of Nina's research on the history of childhood. How do we define childhood? There are a number of frameworks, but none is perfect. Biologically, we might say that adulthood begins when the child has gone through puberty, while legally most countries have a stated age of majority at which a person has the full rights and responsibilities of an adult. Many cultures have ceremonies, rites of passage that move a person from childhood to adulthood. But these all mark an age of transition. They do not describe what childhood is beyond a period of time before X, Y, or Z. They do not explain what childhood represents or our feelings and associations with regard to it. Dr. Shar might suggest that childhood ends when your frontal lobe is fully developed sometime around 25 years old. And Gundam might propose that childhood ends when you get your first mobile suit. This question of defining childhood is particularly relevant because there is a contemporary preoccupation with children, an anxiety even, with how to raise them, the nature of them, what rights and responsibilities they ought to have, how society and the environment affect them, 
the effects of commercialism and consumerism on them, it goes on and on. One of the most famous works on childhood is by French historian Philippe Arié. Published in 1960, the English title is Centuries of Childhood, and it was one of the first works to really dissect contemporary conceptions of childhood and contrast them with previous paradigms in history. To say that childhood, quote, had a history, that over time and in different cultures, both ideas about childhood and the experience of being a child had changed. Children and childhood have been associated with a vast range of concepts over time, including innocence, hope, and naivete on one side, and incapacity or even evil on the other. They've been considered embodiments of nostalgia or even simply small, not quite fully formed adults. Studying childhood is complicated, and this subject gives us a good excuse to talk about history as a field of study and historiography. The way I like to think of it is, if history is a study of events in time and how they relate to each other, historiography is about frameworks. How did a historian choose which events to study? How did they choose to link those events? How do different historians interpret and interact with each other's works? In its purest sense, historiography is merely the study of studying history, how it's been done, who did it, when, why, where, etc. But the physical sciences, like biology or chemistry and physics, as long as we exclude quantum physics, are the same whether you study them or not. History, though, changes when you study it, and how you study it changes it, and studying history changes what happens in the future which becomes history later. On the subject of children specifically, we might ask a historian, are you looking at the lived experiences of children, at the material facts? Conveyed by whom? By parents? By teachers? Business and institutional records? Adults looking back on their own childhoods? Or records written by children themselves? Are you looking at the broad social perception and construction of the concept of a child? Is your perspective anthropological and therefore largely grounded in relationships within and among families, or is it more economic and so grounded in families making decisions to maximize their economic well-being? Can you take your sources at face value? Not if they're written by children, you can't. Can different types of sources reinforce or mediate different interpretations? To explain what I mean by that, I'll use a couple of relevant examples. Parenting advice has always existed. <laughs> and appears in a number of different forms in historical records. You know, there are books, letters, pamphlets, articles that all contain parenting advice. However, just because advice is given doesn't mean it's followed. One of the historians whose work I read for this piece used material culture, things like furniture, toys, clothes, and the like, to see how beliefs about children and childhood were put into practice in real homes. Another example is that a fault some historians find with Arié is that he took many artistic depictions of children at face value. Children in art appeared to just be tiny adults, therefore clearly society just thought of them as tiny adults. Are you telling me that babies in the Renaissance were not born with wings? The degree to which visual depictions of children in art, toys, and so on tell us about childhood as a concept is obviously debatable. How much can we really tell about the lives of children from how they appear in art? Imagine what a historian might infer about contemporary childhood from toy advertisements and mommy influencer Instagram posts. Ugh. <laughs> Heaven forfend. 
As one of my sources summarized, Arie assumed that it was possible within the covers of one book to write about concepts of childhood, about the way children have been treated by adults, and about the experience of being a child. I am going to attempt to provide an overview of the same, but I'm well aware that entire books are written about individual cultures and shorter spans of time. I suppose what I want to illustrate today is really Arie's point, that how we think of children and childhood and the material facts thereof have changed and continue to change, that they are not uniform across humanity and time, and how these facts and further detail about this history in Japan and the world can further enrich how we engage with Gundam, and specifically Tomino's portrayals of and commentary on children. In terms of this research piece, I've tried to be chronological, but where it made more sense to stay within a particular country, culture, or topic, there is a bit of jumping back and forth. I also decided once I got going that there is too much to talk about in a single episode. I've settled on providing an overview today. We've defined the topic and discussed the broader historiography, and I'm going to provide an overview of some different conceptions of children and childhood over a broad span of history and in different parts of the world, except for Japan, which I will talk about in detail next week, along with our discussion of how this information helps us articulate Tomino's specific views. As usual, I reference quite a few papers, but I want to introduce one in particular because I plan on quoting it <laughs> a lot. It's Hugh Cunningham's Histories of Childhood, which is an overview of this field of scholarship as of 1998. Unfortunately, the general sources I found were focused almost exclusively on Europe and the United States. It's Cunningham's position that that's where the bulk of the scholarship has been up until now. And if he's right, then my difficulty finding papers that are more comparative, expansive, or global in their analysis is because those papers don't really exist. It's also possible that his awareness of scholarship from other parts of the world may be limited by language or accessibility constraints, especially since his paper is from the late 90s and internet accessibility of international scholarship was much more limited at that point. But even my own open-ended searches turned up sources that focused on these regions, it was much more difficult to find information on Japan specifically, and there were fewer sources. Self-proclaimed overviews on the topic, I'm looking at you, Wikipedia, make little or no mention of childhood in Eurasia, Southeast Asia, Africa, the Middle East, South America, Australia, or the pre-colonial populations of North and South America or Australia. I've included as many points as I turned up from outside those narrow confines of the U.S. and Europe, so with apologies for the Eurocentrism of, I guess, English-language scholarly publications, and a promise to focus on Japan next week, let's begin. Are we just now getting started? <laughs> Children appear as characters in early medieval, which is to say late 5th and early 6th century, all the way to the 10th century, European texts. One analysis of some of these portrayals was that they have limited value for reconstructing the experiences of actual medieval children, but they do illustrate a shared perception of childhood as a distinct life stage. Whether describing children as saints, sinners, or victims, they portray the youngest members of society as vulnerable and imperfectly innocent. Here we have an example of the potential difference between the social construct of a child or childhood and even children as literary devices and the actual lives of children. In an example of a source I hadn't considered, Western historians frequently infer attitudes towards and about children from familial and especially parental mourning, 
even debating whether or not mourning occurred at all in different time periods, cultures, and so on. Going back as far as the 9th century, scholars focusing on China have found extensive written records of grieving and mourning for children, exceeding what might be considered the minimum acceptable show of grief demanded by ritual and social rules. And this was regardless of birth order or inheritance. In fact, it seemed that fathers grieved more for daughters than for sons. Children did not simply represent a social obligation or an economic opportunity. They were also a valued relationship, an emotional good. Back in Europe, a study of the High Middle Ages in Germany, so that's 1050 to 1350, points out that, quote, people did not think that the way children were treated would affect how they turned out as adults. Contrary to most thought about children in the West since the Enlightenment, in this definition of the child, children are almost fully formed people, to the point where certain aspects of adult character could be inferred from a child's character and behavior. This strain of thought persisted as the dominant one until the 1700s. In 1689, English philosopher John Locke argued that children were in fact a tabula rasa, a blank slate that needed to be filled with information and rules and structures for analyzing that information. And by the early part of the next century, his theory had gained substantial popularity. Around the High Middle Ages is also when we begin to see evidence in Europe of what's called children's culture. What that means is the culture experienced by children starts to become separate and distinct from that experienced by adults. For example, toys and games created specifically for children, rather than children simply learning to play games that adults already play. Educational and entertainment books written specifically for children, rather than children reading material written for adults. It seems completely natural to us now, but children didn't used to learn to read on children's books. They learned to read on, like, Bibles. <laughs> And, and other texts that are not easy texts. They're not constructed to be fun or <laughs> approachable for children. The distinction between childhood and adulthood and the evidence of a specific children's culture pretty much continues to increase from this point on. The growing significance of state institutions in family life over time means that institutional records are a significant source of information particularly for information about poor families, though, of course, this provides a skewed perspective. In the early modern period, approximately 1500 to 1800 in England, for instance, children began to be considered to have rights on their own behalf. This led the state to take a more active role in dictating what kinds of support should be offered to poor children, though the state itself didn't administer these programs that was done at the parish level a parish being a geographic territory defined by the local religious administration. Several studies have been done with records of foundling hospitals and orphanages, where even though the bulk of children in the population were not abandoned, if a significant enough number are, a historian might use that information to make inferences about family life in a particular region. For example, in 15th century Florence, many abandoned children were the offspring of well-to-do men and their servants. But in the Basque region around the same time, such children were much less likely to be abandoned. The abandonment rate only increased when socially, responsibility for those children shifted from fathers to mothers, who were much less likely to have the resources to care for a child. In Florence in the 1700s, foundling hospitals were established by philanthropists mostly to care for orphans or children born out of wedlock. However, data from the end of the century shows that 70% or more of the time, it wasn't unwed mothers or fathers abandoning children, but families. And throughout the first half of the 1800s, that percentage stayed high, 
ranging from 40 to 70 percent. In Milan in the 1840s, approximately one-third of all children born to married parents were abandoned. This was largely an economic safety valve for the household. When times were hard, a child would be abandoned to an institution, but usually with the intent that when the economic situation improved, the child would be reclaimed. And it wasn't only infants. A child might enter one of these institutions anytime from infancy to their early teens. Although the older the child, the more likely they'd be able to contribute to earning money for the household, and therefore generate resources for the family rather than only use them. The loss of one parent was a common source of economic stress for families and frequently prompted the abandonment of some children. This was also true in England during the same period. These kinds of trends raise, quote, fundamental questions about the value, both emotional and economic, placed on children. But a look at only one of these perspectives is limiting. Some historians focus on the making and raising of children as a decision, with adults as decision makers and analyzing a number of different variables, such as inheritance, family form in the society, migration, and so on, that influence that decision. But Cunningham points out that this may over-rationalize human behavior. We are not purely rational beings. Some would argue we aren't rational at all. I took a marketing class where the instructor talked about the theory that most behavior does not have an inciting, logical, internal, and considered rationale. We do things, and then we rationalize them after the fact, because we know we're supposed to have reasons for the things we do, and because we consider rationality a positive trait. Can you tell this theory made an impression on me? <laughs> the point being that while there may be rational variables that influence adults' decisions to have, raise, or abandon children, there's also an emotional and relational piece that can be lost. One benefit of the institutional records that I mentioned before is that they often include things like mementos and messages left with abandoned children that provide a glimpse of the emotional side of these decisions at the time that they were made. Corinne Calvert examines 300 years of history in colonial North America and the United States in her book, Children in the House, The Material Culture of Early Childhood, 1600 to 1900, Material culture being a reference to household objects, clothing, physical stuff. Based on these objects and other sources, she delineates three different eras with three different ideas of childhood. In the first of these periods, 1600 to 1750, children are, quote, inchoate adults, which is to say, not yet fully formed. Childhood was something to be got through as quickly as possible, as evidenced by clothes and furniture whose purpose was to get babies standing and walking ASAP. Crawling was bestial. Uprightness was not only physical but moral, and childhood was a period of inadequacy with no positive attributes of its own. We see similar attitudes at this time in England. Remember, Locke didn't write about children as tabula rasa until 1689. Children were conceived of not as blank but as inherently sinful, necessitating adult involvement so that they learned moral and ethical codes and behavior. Excessively affectionate parenting was seen as undermining children's respect for their parents. In keeping with the small adults premise, once they were up and walking, girls' clothes were simply scaled down versions of women's clothes, and boys' clothes were much the same as grown men's. Then in the second half of the 1700s, there's a change. The advice to parents is to let children develop at their own pace. And Calvert's evidence that this advice was put into practice is that those furnishings and clothing that promoted early standing and walking were discarded and replaced by new designs in childhood toys, clothing, and furniture. In this period, from 1750 to 1830, 
Calvert describes the characterization of children as natural creatures who could be trusted to outgrow the negative aspects of childhood. Childhood was a necessary preparatory stage for adulthood and became longer as there was more separation and distinction between the lives of children and those of adults. Assimilation into adult society happened at a later age. This corresponds with European Enlightenment-era attitudes towards children, though we must contrast the experience of children in wealthy families with those in working-class or poor ones. In the same generation that Enlightenment thinkers were characterizing childhood as a period of innate natural goodness and innocence, what the French philosopher Rousseau described as, quote, a brief period of sanctuary before people encounter the perils and hardships of adulthood, two-thirds of workers in the cotton mills of England and Scotland were children. Children in most homes had long been expected to do chores and housework, help in the tending of younger children, or work in the family business, especially true in farm families, but also for craftspeople and the like. But industrialization led to children working more hours, many in highly dangerous conditions. The incongruity between the social theory of what childhood should be and what childhood actually was for many children is what fueled campaigns for legal rights and protections for children in the early 1800s. To return to Calvert's analysis, from 1830 to 1900, there's yet another shift to children as superior to adults with respect to their innocence and purity. In this paradigm, growing up was in fact a, quote, downward slide into corruption and compromise. Pure, innocent children were susceptible to degradation and needed to be protected from morally harmful knowledge or experiences. The great thing about all of these different theories about childhood is that you can see all of them still in play today. It's a whole mixture of them competing with each other. I talk about that a little bit at the end. Oh, sorry. No, you mean to steal your thunder? It's cool. Actually, I was trying to steal your thunder. <laughs> we'll get there, Tom. We'll get there. In China, we see a similar elevation of children, though without the same sort of moralistic degradation of adulthood. And it happens at an earlier period, in the 16th and 17th centuries. One source describes the Wang Yangming school of Neo-Confucianism as a, quote, veritable cult of the child that was revolutionary for suggesting that children were superior to adults in some ways, and that there were aspects of childishness that adults should attempt to preserve in themselves. The philosopher Li Zhi wrote in the 16th century that, quote, if one loses the heart of the child, then he loses his true heart. Returning to Europe and the United States from 1830 to 1900, one source describes childhood at this time as androgynous and asexual. They don't go into a lot of detail, but I wonder if agender might be a better term than androgynous. Is it that childhood had characteristics associated with both male and female genders, or is it that childhood as a life stage was genderless? Whichever it is, this was tied to the concept of children as pure and adulthood, and therefore sex and marriage, as a compromise. Necessary, but also kind of degenerate. From the 1830s, clothing and hair for boys and girls was basically identical. Until the late 1800s, when gendered clothing began to be emphasized again, a process culminating in the now omnipresent, but maybe slowly changing, color coding of boy and girl clothes. The late 1800s and into the 1900s also saw increasing interference by the state in the lives of families and children mostly through laws around child labor and mandatory schooling. This naturally led to changes in family finances, both the loss of a child's income from work and from an accompanying increase in social pressure on mothers to work less or not at all 
to provide childcare and supervision to their now unoccupied children. School was also a means to impose middle-class standards of speech, dress, deportment, and quote-unquote civilization on working-class children. Schooling was also one of the major ways for the state, which was dominated by the descendants of white European settlers, to impose cultural norms about childhood onto indigenous populations, which had very different ideas about who children are and what their lives should be like. And also immigrant populations, basically anybody who didn't fit the same mold and didn't have the same ideas about these things as the dominant ruling class. The trend in Europe and the United States from the late 19th century and through the 20th century was for childhood to get longer and for it to become even more separate and distinct from adulthood. There's no one standard for when childhood ends, but we can look at a number of different factors, including increases in the number of years of schooling considered mandatory, a separate justice system, and with it an age or age range at which a person switches from the child to the adult system a rising minimum legal age for marriage, and a rising minimum legal age for access to things like alcohol and tobacco. The other fundamental shift is that children have gone from being expected to contribute to their family's economic well-being from an early age to being a drain on family resources for the entirety of their childhood and youth. As Viviana Zelizer put it, quote, the valuation of children changed from one where they were valued according to their contributions to the family economy to one where they became productively useless, but emotionally priceless. We know from some of our other sources that I've talked about so far that this is a simplification, but it is an eloquent one. I would like to present the caveat that this may have been a prevailing trend, but it was not a universal experience. Recent, as in this past week, discussions of minimum wage in the United States have highlighted that there are still considerable socioeconomic class differences to childhood, and Cunningham acknowledges that the scholarship circa 1998 does not adequately address these class differences. Working class and poor children still, today, make necessary contributions to their families' finances and to household work, even in wealthy countries like the United States. This is mostly teens who meet the minimum legal age for most paid work in the United States, even though they do not yet meet other age milestones for adulthood. But I've certainly seen younger children in New York on the subway selling snacks and the like. In the United States, laws around child labor have a number of exceptions, including for family businesses and family farms. To quote the relevant U.S. Department of Labor page about this, quote, minimum age requirements do not apply to minors employed by their parents or by a person acting as their guardian. The only exceptions are in mining, manufacturing, and occupations where the minimum age requirement is 18. And I had forgotten this, but for most non-agricultural labor, the minimum legal age is 14, and the legal limit for the number of hours a young person is allowed to work only applies until they're 16. Children also work to support themselves in cases where they are effectively abandoned or forced out of the home. This can happen due to economic constraints and can also happen when there's an abusive home environment or they are rejected due to their gender expression or sexuality. The trend of viewing children as having no economic utility may be partly caused by rising standard of living, that means many families don't need their children to work, but an even larger part is that the cultural norms around childhood have changed, so even families that might really benefit from their children working actively discourage it. This is especially true in cities like New York, where 
space is at a premium and everything is more expensive. But I think it's true throughout the United States and I'm certain in many other countries as well. But children are not just consumers themselves. They are an act of consumption for their parents and a conspicuous one at that. Uh, and the more resources that the parents pour into their child, the more uh, piano lessons <laughs> and the more ballet lessons that Glemmy forces Lena to endure, the more impressive she becomes. And that reflects back onto him or in the real world, uh, the child reflects back onto the parent. And this is a way of displaying socioeconomic status of saying we are middle class or we are upper middle class or we are wealthy because our children do the things and have the things that the children of those classes have. And because this is status, that display is effectively reality. You create your status through your presentation of status. Which is why even families that might benefit from their kid working rather than doing prestige activities might prefer that their child do the prestige activities. Obviously, there's also the motive of wanting your kid to be well-rounded or wanting them to get to do certain enrichments, but it's also a class signifier. But it does also have a very practical value because in the long run, the financial value of making friends with the kids on the lacrosse team is probably significantly greater than whatever wages the child would earn. Ah, so that trade-off is going to come up in later discussion, so I'm glad you mentioned it. There's also been a really big shift in the position of the state vis-a-vis -vis enforcement of mandatory schooling. When they first started to impose mandatory schooling on populations in England, even magistrates weren't necessarily inclined to punish kids who were working instead of going to school because there was a considerable understanding for the need of that child to work for their family and to help support their family. These trends of a lengthened childhood and of, quote, childhood as a period of economic dependence, consumption, and study bear out in other regions as well. It bears out in Japan, which we'll talk about next week. And another source notes a, quote, growing sentimentality about children within the elites in Chinese society, which begins much earlier than the process described in Europe and the United States, but continues into today. And then there are also places where this transition has not taken place. Myron Wiener's The Child and the State in India attempts to account for why India has a higher rate of child labor than many countries with similar or even lower per capita incomes, and comes to the conclusion that in spite of the legislation of compulsory schooling, there is little to no enforcement because the elites in society consider child labor acceptable. There are competing analyses that conclude child labor will only diminish when the benefits of a child attending school are seen as greater than the cost in terms of lost income, or until the long-term benefit can even be pursued, an impossibility when day-to-day -day survival is a concern. Families make these decisions and deploy their resources based on their personal understanding of what's best for the family as a whole, regardless of the state's legal position on the matter. Many contemporary debates also focus on nature versus nurture, in a way that I think mediates several of the older theories of childhood we've talked about. The one that the child is simply an adult who hasn't quite finished yet. 
Inborn traits, and as we now understand it, genetics, determining the adult outcome of the childhood process, and the other, that experiences, relationships, and how a child is treated shape the adult they become. And different scholars come to different conclusions about the relative influence of each, but there is clear evidence for both being relevant. While it's impossible to be comprehensive, I hope this overview has shown the ways in which children's lives and the socially constructed concept of the child have changed over time and varied across regions and cultures. Next week will be part two, in which I look at the historical trends in Japan specifically, and Tom and I look back on all of the Gundam we've covered so far to summarize Tomino's view of children and childhood in 1980s society. Next time on episode 3.22, Never to Return, we cover Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta episode 24 and littering. Ordered by whom? I love amphibious mobile suits. Either a clever idea, a terrible idea, or maybe both. No wait, that's a terrible idea. Yahoo! Pots, comma, kettles. Foreign powers fighting over African territory. Gravity sickness. The Kapool is too cool. Irony. Who will cry for you? And fighting sucks, man. You will see the battlefield of new types. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music is New York City Instrumental by Spinning Merkaba. Radio Free Shangri-La is performed by the MSB Players. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram, at GundamPodcast, on Facebook, at Facebook.com slash GundamPodcast, or by email, at GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or, why not share your wrong Gundam opinions with the world by shouting... Why are the Gundams shaped like people? Space fighters should be designed to minimize their front-facing profile, and missiles make better engineering sense at that scale anyway. Better yet, they should all be orbs, capable of moving in any direction. Truly, the orb is the queen of the space battlefield. Our wrong Gundam opinion this week was submitted by Dusty Stars. Thank you, Dusty Stars. Except for the bit about orbs, you can blame me for that. Out your window at passersby. We won't hear you, but the world needs to know. And thank you for listening. To destroy the flagship or prevent it from re-entering the atmosphere. Not really re-entering because they've never been there before. 
<laughs> sip, sip, sip. And if that's not accurate to what your research ends up being, I'll re-record that bit some other time. We see somebody mess it up <laughs> and and pay the price for that. Almost said it up. <laughs> <laughs> the fighting has brought them into Earth's gravity well. Earth, Earth's... <laughs> Talking is hard. Yeah. You were going to make oh, a funny joke yeah, about was, the AU. I was going to make a funny joke. I guess you could say that no one in the show has told us what AU stands for. Eh? <laughs> I, I was it has two meanings the pause was because I really wasn't sure if I was gonna laugh or groan but I laughed so well because see it has it's an acronym okay but also <laughs> they haven't articulated their mission statement they say that explaining a joke is like dissecting a frog you'll learn a lot but it's not good for either This time, why don't you say, and now the recap for The Burning Earth. Rumble, rumble, rumble. <laughs> Constant interruptions. They don't want you to tell the story of childhood. I might question our current conception thereof. I might cause multiple people to question our current conception thereof. Sorry, swear words. It's not like this is going straight out on the air. This is true. Okay then. Right. Are you, are you ad-libbing already? I know the italics are different in the thing, but yeah. there's also a... Yeah. You're trying to rewrite it, Tom. I'm trying to stick to what you've written. Like, He's picked like really, really uh, long grunts before sure. because it's when she loses self-control. Because the fundamental thing is she's actually really coarse yeah. in a lot of ways. Oh, Bethany. Hector. Bethany. Hector. You are the most beautiful woman in space. Well, yes, obviously. <laughs> <laughs>